Welcome, everyone. We are in the middle of a teaching called Walls into Windows, where we've been dealing specifically with things that we do in relationships that will help that relationship either build a wall, which causes problems, or open a window, which creates lots of freedom, communication, and things. We learned a couple of details. Uh, two weeks ago, we learned that greatness ultimately is an issue of humility, that, that the best way to be best at something is to live a humble life and approach to that thing. And so, especially when we're talking about spiritual things, the closer you grow to Christ, the more you're going to be humble about your relationship with Christ. And that's an important thing for us to get. And remember, when we try to come across like we are higher and heavier and tougher and better and stronger and smarter and more spiritual than we really are. What we're, what we're really doing is, is showing a lack of greatness in our walk with the Lord. And so greatness is humility. And then last week, we dealt with what it's like to really think of others before ourselves and to really let what God's doing in somebody else's life be a major kind of drive for how he's using us. And so we asked the question, is there one or maybe more than one lost sheep that you need to be helping right now. And so I hope that over the last week, some of you have been thinking about that, considering that, praying about that, and, and even open to the fact that if you think, you know what, the answer is no, I, I don't know who that would be, uh, then, then an openness to God saying, Lord, I know that you would love to use me to reach out to someone who's far from you. Uh, help me see who that is. Help me see who that is. I'll be attentive. I'll be focused. I'll have my ears wide open. I want to see with my eyes what you want me to do, and I will do that, all right? Today, we come to a place where we're going to move into the third kind of step or thought about this, and in using our visuals that we've been using, the conviction visuals, today, if you would, focus in on that fire. It's that time of the year, by the way. It's, it's getting to where it's not quite so cold that you just absolutely can't be outside, but it's not quite so warm uh, that you just feel perfectly comfortable. Uh, yesterday, by the way, is an exception to what I'm talking about right now. It was downright cold. Uh, but anybody in the room like a, a fire? Do you like sitting around a fire, anybody? I love a fire. I had a fire yesterday by myself. That's what I did. Like, I just wanted to sit around a fire. I just loved it. And so I went out to our, our barn. We've got a little wood stove, and I started a wood stove, and I cracked it open, and I just sat there, and I just loved it. The back of my body was freezing cold. The front of my body was nice and toasty. And then every now and then I would do one of these and just try to keep it level, right? So the visual, when we have a fire, when we look at that fire, the idea is that when things get hot, we get close, when things get hot, we get close. Now, hot could be when there's conflict, we get close, we work through it together. Uh, when somebody's going through something horrible, we get close. When somebody's dealing with a real trauma and they're dealing with a lot of pain, we get close. So when you see that fire visual, what that should remind you about us as a church and who we're going to be is that when things get hot, we get close. We, we want to be there for one another and we want to be there with one another. And so that's what today's message is about. We're going to deal with how Christians handle conflict between uh, their relationship. So if you would, let's pray. Lord, help, help us today to hear you, that I would communicate your word truthfully, honestly, clearly, in a helpful way, and that we would be hearers of your word, Lord, that our ears would be wide open to your Spirit's voice, Lord, help us to see how to apply your word in our lives today. Not so that we're not just here to gain some sort of intellectual knowledge about what the Bible says, 
But Lord, we want more than that. We, we want to not only know what the Bible teaches to be true, but we want to be living it. Lord, we want to, we want to make sure that it is a part of who we are, not just a part of what we know. So Lord, take our knowledge and turn it into action. Lord, take our thoughts and turn them into the real way we relate to one another. Help us to see today how we can improve not only our lives, but the lives of those around us by handling conflict the way you tell us to handle conflict. In your name we pray. Amen. I find that it's best to teach and preach on how to handle conflict when there is no conflict. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to talk about it when there is conflict, but people are a little less receptive. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're parenting. You have two children. Those two children are fairly close in age. They love each other at the core, but to look at them right now over the toy they're fighting about, you would think these two kids hate each other's guts. Is that the time to go, let's talk about how we handle conflict? Hopefully, you've already talked about how we handle conflict so that you can remind them of what they already know and they can live it out in that moment because trying to convince them of new thoughts during the time when they're both very elevated and frustrated and angry, uh, my guess is their receptivity to that is not necessarily going to be at its best. The same is true with church and other things. We want to be people who are receptive to God's teaching And we want to live it out in our lives. So we're going to talk about it when it's not an emotional pressing thing so that we can know it, understand it, and then when the opportunity is there, we live it. All right? That's our goal. That's our process. That's what's going to happen. So when it comes to relationships, if you're around me very much, if we get to talk about things, uh, you're going to hear me say these three words because I am just at my core convinced that over and over and over and over and over in the scriptures, when we see God interact with people through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through other leaders like the Apostle Paul or John or Mark or James, what happens is that there is this pattern of compassion, acceptance, and truth. And it's not a pattern where one is more important than the other, but there is some sort of process where things happen. For example, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, Jesus reaches up to this guy and with compassion makes a statement about acceptance. Like, hey, I would like to come to your house today. And from that, it leads to a conversation where Jesus gets very clear about what truth is for Zacchaeus. When the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus' first act is to kneel down with her. That's an act of compassion. He then stands with her as everyone else leaves. And then he tells her a very true statement about how she needs to stop sinning, right? It happens this way over and over and over and over in Scripture. You want a particular verse to look to? When Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that we are to go into all the world making disciples Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I am commanded you. Going is an act of compassion, right? Baptizing them is an act of bringing them in, like showing acceptance, and teaching them all that that the disciples have taught us. That's an act of truth. So over and over and over, we see this pattern lived out. The best way for you to understand this pattern is to think of it out of line, And this is intended to be a little humorous. I hope you have a little fun with this with me. When you try to live it more of as a truth, acceptance, compassion process instead of the other way around, here's what happens. Some of you have probably heard me talk about this before because I think it's just a core reality of how we relate as Christians. 
There was a church that was in the town where I lived while going to seminary. This church had seven words in its name. Seven words. They had more words than regular attenders in their name, okay? And it was like the fundamental King James only, male leadership, you know, no drinking, smoking, cussing, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal church. Like it was just like this long thing. And here's what the sign did. The sign basically said, we're going to tell you the truth about who we are and who we want you to be. And if you fit within that definition, then we will accept you here and you should come to church with us. And if you're one of us and you need compassion, we will be there for you. But that's exactly the opposite of the way Jesus does ministry. Jesus starts out by offering compassion to everyone. In fact, compassion becomes the first act of his mind. Like the, when he sees someone, the first thought is a compassionate thought. When he acts towards someone, the first act is a compassionate act. When, when he recognizes someone, the first recognition is a compassionate recognition. And then he goes to them. He either kneels with them or stands with them or eats with them or go. And so this is why uh, so many of the early religious leaders were so upset with Jesus because they said things like this. Why does he eat and drink with sinners? Why is he a friend of sinners? Why does he do those things? They were angry because in their mind, Jesus was being compassionate towards someone and he was offering some sort of acceptance to someone that they thought was outside of the realm of deserving those things. They were living in a truth acceptance compassion, putting their beliefs and what they think and the choices and what they believe is right and wrong and all that up front so that everyone is measured by their own ethics. And if you don't measure up, then you don't get in. And if you're not in, then you don't matter. That's ultimately the way the Pharisees and Sadducees did ministry. And it's often the way that many Christians today think as well, even though we don't like to admit it. It's a reality. When we are compassionate people leading with compassion like Jesus does, then when we see someone whose sin is all over them and so obvious, it will still not be the first thing we see when we see them. It won't be the first thing we see. Because the first thing we see will be a man or a woman who, who is experiencing some brokenness, experiencing some pain, experiencing some distance, and who the love of God and the grace of Jesus is reaching out to. And we will find ourselves drawn to try and being helpful in their life. That's what we mean by acceptance. So that we might eventually come to a place where the relationship is right to speak truth. Now, every time I talk about this, there's got to be at least one person. Usually this person comes up to me at the end of the service and goes, hey, I was the guy. I was the one. Okay, that's fine. Usually there's at least one who thinks I'm talking about liberalism and conservatism and that liberalism is the people who like want to be compassionate and we're just going to be nice to everybody and we're just going to be kind and all that stuff. And, and then the conservatives are the ones who just want to preach the truth and do it right and say what the Bible says and that kind of thing. But, but that's a miss. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, let me use these words to define it. Liberalism would actually be compassion, acceptance, nothing else. 
Like, I want to be really nice to people, and I want to accept anybody and everybody, and we're going to avoid ever dealing with something might be right or wrong or good or bad or true or untrue. We're just going to ignore that. That would be liberalism, and that would be a fail, okay? But over-the-top conservatism would be, we're not all that conservative. We're not all that concerned about people. We just want people to know what we believe. And so we're going to lay out there, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's good, this is what's bad, and if you are on the wrong or the bad side, then keep your distance. And that's not what Jesus did either. But to be like Jesus is to be able to operate in both of those worlds, where we're both compassionate and accepting, and we tell the truth. And we tell the truth. I want you to think about this for for a second. How hard is it to hear hard truth from someone you think doesn't care about you? Be honest with me. Like, anybody really listen to that? Like, like, like hearing hard truth from someone who you are fairly convinced could care less about who you are. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to straight up tell you that that brings about the rebellious version of Brad. I don't really want to hear hard truth from you because you don't care about me. Right? It makes me not trust you. And I think the truth would be, you would agree with that in, in most cases. However, how easy is it to hear hard truth from someone that you know loves you and cares about you and wants the best for you? All of a sudden now, here we're seeing why so many people responded so well to Jesus. Because by the time he got down to go and sin no more... By the time he got down to, you need to give all that you've stolen back to the poor and then some, by the time he got to those really hard lessons, he had already knelt in the dust with people. He had already stood between people and their accusers. He had already chosen someone out of a tree and gone home with that guy. He had already shown this desire to know someone and care about them as a human being. It's an offer, an act of compassion, acceptance, and truth. Now, got that? So everything I'm going to say today about relationships and conflict and all that stuff exists in this world where biblically we want to be people of compassion and acceptance and truth. We want to be people who don't have to shy away from saying hard truths We want to be able to say hard truths, but we want to say those hard truths in the confines of a loving, caring, genuine, authentic relationship. And when those two things are married together, it's amazing what Jesus does. It's amazing what he does. So let's do this. In your Bibles, Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 and following, we are still walking through the 18th chapter of Matthew, uh, and we come to... A verse that at first glance, some people think kind of feels like it doesn't fit in this chapter. This chapter starts out with Jesus protecting children, right? And he talks about how harsh he would be towards someone who causes a little child to to fall. He talks about tying a millstone. They should have a millstone tied around their neck. And it'd be better for them to do that than it would be before God to stand against a child. And he goes on and then he eventually deals with this passage about a lost sheep and how he's, he would leave the 99 in order to go after the one. So there's this all kinds of relational turmoil in the stories leading up to this. And Jesus is trying to help people understand the importance of staying together, moving together, growing together, taking care of one another, protecting the innocent, protecting the ones who can't protect themselves, and ultimately leading forward. So then what happens 
is he jumps into this place where he's dealing with conflict between brothers or sisters or just siblings in Christ, if you will, friends in Christ. And he says this to the people who are listening. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's just the first little bit. We're going to keep reading more, but let's talk about this one slide at a time as we go through it. First of all, he says, if your brother sins against you. So how many people are involved in this sin process? Two people. One person sinning against one person. That, that's what's happened. So what this passage is not discussing is when someone maybe sins in a very big public way. It's not describing a detailed process as to how you should handle, for instance, if your church's leadership sins in some way, uh, you don't have to feel like, hey, I heard that my pastor did this horrible thing. I have to go talk to him one-on-one before I can talk to him about this. That, that's, this is about friendship, walking with God together in friendship, and when a brother sins against another brother, the first step is that you go and talk to that brother one-on-one and don't include anybody else in it. Stephanie and I had a good friend one time. We were young. We were in our 20s. And uh, this friend, a young lady, she was mad at me. Which, by the way, had you known me in my 20s, you might have been too. It happens. Uh, She was mad at me. I I don't even remember what it was about. I'm I'm sure I was at least partially or mostly wrong. That's probably true. Um, She sat down with me across the desk, and she said to me, I really didn't want to come talk to you about this because I was nervous that I wasn't right about whether or not what you did was wrong. But I've talked to this person and 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 this person. person. She named nine people, this person and this person and this person, and they all agree that I should come talk to you. And so we talked about it, right? We talked about it. By the end of the conversation... She was like, man, I feel so much better. I thank you so much for apologizing. And she apologized to me. And like our relationship was back to the top. And then she goes, I wish there was something I could do to say thank you for the way you handled this. To which I said, I can think of nine things you can do. See what I'm getting at? Like, Now there are nine people out there who were mad at me about something that didn't involve them. And you could have just come to, here's what I'm getting at. That's an old story. There's really no emotion there anymore. It's all good. But this is what I mean. If we don't watch out, then our fear of confrontation or our fear of being wrong in our thoughts could actually cause lots and lots of trouble. We'll get more of that down the road. But he's actually saying Have a relationship with someone that's so strong that when they sin against you, you can go talk to them directly. That's what you should do. You should go talk to them directly. And and I know you're thinking, well, wait a second. I don't know them that well. Okay, well, if you don't know them that well, then they're not a brother. And if they're not a brother, then maybe you shouldn't let the fact that they sinned against you be that big of a deal to you. Maybe you should let it go. Maybe you should let it go and move on, you know? Here's what you definitely don't do. You definitely don't go to social media, as so many times we see, right? Well, he did it again, right? 
You know what that is? That's someone who's insecure about their frustration with someone else, trying to get as many people as possible to agree with them that they're right so that they then have more confidence to accuse the other person. And in the long run, what happens is a lot of craziness, a lot of craziness. It's not helpful. It's not good. When a brother sins against you, Go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's where it starts. It's not going to necessarily end there, but that's where it begins. Begins with one-on-one, and it says, this is the great thing, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, think with me for just a second, okay? That's the very first thing Jesus says. Go to him one-on-one, maybe it'll work out, and you will have gained your brother. In other words, you've saved the relationship. You, 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 you've done a step that God used in you taking that step, and now the relationship is saved. And not just the relationship is saved, because we're going to learn as we read down this passage that ultimately what could be at risk is this brother's relationship with his own church, and in some senses, his relationship with God. And by going to that person one-on-one, just between the two of you, and hashing it out and dealing with it, he says, by doing so, you have gained or saved, some translations say, your brother. Handling it the right way helps God, you know, in the process of God bringing them back into right relationship with him. Next verse. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the presence, I'm sorry, the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let's, let's make sure we get this. So, so the idea is this. The idea is if, if your brother sins against you and you keep it private and you go talk to that man or that woman one-on-one and at the end of it, the conflict is still there, okay? No, the, nobody's apologized. Nobody's started to move in the right direction. Nobody's trying. Nobody's listening. Maybe nobody's understanding um, Stephen Covey says in the habits of doing things right, he says that one of the first habits is you have to seek to understand. You have to actually understand why this person is angry. And if, if the person is not listening, they don't want to hear it, okay, well, step two. Step two is take, some, take, take one or two people with you so that now you have a conversation. And now you have some folks. It's a funny translation here. It says... Um, because that reads kind of rough, doesn't it? That, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's not really the way we talk in the English language now. It's just kind of a rugged, kind of rough way of saying that. So what it literally means, by the way, the, the evidence is, is literally means the words coming out of my mouth. Like literally means the things I'm saying to you. It reminded me of this. Maybe you've seen Rush Hour, uh, Carter talking to Lee, and he says, some of you know exactly what he says, don't you? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Okay, like that's, that's, what, that's what, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I thought of another famous movie that I love, The Princess Bride. When one guy looks at the other and says, Fez, I, I do not think that word means what you think it means, right? This is, this is what he's saying. The, the one or two witnesses are not going with you to take your side, You need to make sure you get this. Because if you, let's say you're mad at your friend, your friend did you wrong, you think. You went to your friend, your friend didn't agree with you, you guys came out of that, there's no resolution, and so you now go and get two people who agree with you and they're on your side. And you take those three people now back to the one and you just gang tackle them. 
with thought and with argument. I want to be real clear. That is not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching that you take a, 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 a loyal to the relationship person, not loyal to you, but loyal to the relationship, loyal to truth. You take a good witness and that, that person or those people's job is to help both of you understand where each of you are coming from so that you can seek to have clarity in what happened and what needs to happen and what's going to happen. Get this, here's the risk. The risk is that you could be the initiator of this. You could be the one who feels like your brother sinned against you and you went and talked to him and he, and he didn't agree with you and now you're kind of still frustrated. So you go get one or two witnesses and you go back and meet with him and I want you to understand there's a 50-50 shot here that those two witnesses could actually look at you and go, no, I'm sorry, you're the one who's wrong. The question is, do you value the relationship so much that you would take that risk? Most people don't. Most people don't. Most people find that it's easier to let a relationship die on the vine than it is to risk being shown as the one who has some fault in it. Now, I said 50-50 chance that it could be yours or theirs. The, the honest reality is, in almost every time I've personally ever been involved in a situation like this, it was both of their fault in some way. Like there was shared responsibility in the flaw or the sin that happened. And what clarity pointed out was, okay, what you did, that was over the line, that was sinful, and you should repent and apologize. But you put them in that position and you put them in a place where it was very easy for them to sin, and you put them in a place where emotionally they were feeling hurt and frustrated by you. So you also share in this fault, in this flaw, and you should repent and apologize to them. And in the long run, what happens is that when you take the right one or two people so that they're not just going to be on your side, help you win your case, help you prove your point, but they're going to be a physician to the health of the relationship and a, and, a, and a representative of the truth of the scriptures. When that happens, most of the time, that conversation ends with two compassionate, loving people who now that they've understood the truth of the situation are apologizing to one another, repenting of their own mistakes and sins, and they're walking forward in relationship together, having experienced forgiveness. Make sense? This is a very important reality for us. So I want you to think about some things here. I want you to notice the value of the relationship. I want you to notice that, that in order for me or you to do what the Bible's telling us to do here, this is a relationship that has to matter to us. So let's have a little fun with this. Um, if you work in the public, if you work around groups of people, sometimes what happens is there are a lot more people that know you than you know. So people will see you, you know, like if you take someone who's on WPSD, for instance, and they're a weatherman or a newscaster or a sportscaster or something like that, and they go to Walmart, people walk up to them and call them by name, and yet they have no idea who this person is. That happens a lot, okay? Um, sometimes when we live in a world where we have hundreds, if not thousands of social media friends and connections, there might be lots of people who know us that we don't necessarily know. 
What I'm saying is that we may have relationship with a lot of people, but that doesn't mean that all of those relationships are of the same value or the same strength of connection. And sometimes there's going to be someone come to you and say, I don't like the way you did that. I don't like the way you handled that. And you're thinking, I don't know your name. Right? I don't mean that like harshly. I just mean this passage is when two brothers sin against each other. Like like people who have a developed closeness, right? And so there might be times when you simply need to say, sir or ma'am, I'm sorry if something I did bothered you, but I'm going to live with it. And I hope that you can live with it and let's go forward because it's not really this. Can you imagine how many people pulled Billy Graham to the side and said, I thought that you misinterpreted that particular passage of scripture. You're like, like, you know, like, like you, can't, you, you, can't just res, you can't respond to every critical comment ever made about anybody ever. Like, you can't. But what we do have to have is healthy, close, good relationships within our church, within our families, within our neighborhoods. And those relationships we need to value so much that we're willing to go through these types of steps to help keep them strong. Make sense? So you have to notice the value of the relationship. That's really important here in order to get what's going on. And then, I love this, we have to seek clarity in disagreement so that you can keep closeness in a relationship. If someone loves you, but time and time again, they begin to recognize that you don't understand them. You're not paying attention to them. You're not clearly seeing them. What will happen over time is they may still hang around you, And they may still call you friend, but the closeness that could have been there in that relationship will be divided, weakened, and pulled apart. It's how over time you might think, you know what, he and I used to be the best of friends. I wonder what happened. And nobody can even really remember what happened. The truth is, it's probably not one thing that happened. It's probably a hundred things that happened. But over time, one or the other of you discerned that they're not really seeing clearly what's going on here and the closeness of that relationship is pulled apart. Sometimes that happens naturally, but we don't want that to be a normal part of our relationship building. So the scripture tells us when, a, when, a, when somebody sins against you, a brother sins against you, go talk to them one-on-one. Try to help them understand what you saw, what you felt, what you experienced. Try to un- help them understand. And if they do, awesome, you have saved your brother. You've gathered him back. Your relationship is solid, and nobody else had to know about it. But if that doesn't work, you take one or two witnesses with you, somebody who can help the two of you see clearly what has happened. And if that works well, guess what? You have saved the relationship, and all things are good. So many of us, though, I think, fear confrontation so much that we don't ever take the steps for these processes to happen. And so what I want to just lay out there for you to think about today, to consider in your own life and your own mind, is that fear of helpful confrontation can destroy healthy relationships. Here's what I mean. A lot of people in relationships won't have the confrontation until the confrontation is so harsh that it's very hard to overcome. Think of it like earthquakes and fault lines. We live on a fault line. It's possible that at some point in the next 100 years, the ground under our feet could be shaken very, very hard. 
to the point that it could be Richter scale up toward the top and lots of destruction could come. But you know what's better? What's better is when every three, six, nine months, maybe year, year and a half, the ground shakes just a little bit. Not much damage is done, but the pressure in the fault line is slightly relieved. So that never is there a time when there's so much pressure that it just goes boom. It's a good way to think about relationships in a, in a, or a conflict in a healthy relationship. Conflict is not in and of itself a bad thing. Conflict actually can be a really helpful, good thing. Conflict, when handled correctly, brings clarity and closeness. But fear of conflict will keep you from getting the clarity or the closeness, and ultimately, it can, it can rob you of healthy relationships. This is why you end up feeling this way. Someone says, I feel like I always try to avoid hurting anybody's feelings. I feel like I'm nice to everybody all the time. I feel like when they hurt me, I just suck it up and don't say anything and take it. How could people not want to be my best friend? What you think is making you more magnetic in a relational sense is actually the polar opposite. Because when, when you don't care enough about the relationship to have the helpful conflict and therefore have the clarity of conversation, then ultimately what happens is people feel less close to you and they feel more distanced. Ultimately, if you don't have the helpful confrontation, it can destroy healthy relationships. This is important. It's very important. It's, it's why when you see couples, you know, people tease, people tease older marriages about being short with one another. Like they're jokes and that kind of thing. You know, you, lots of memes about, you know, when we first got married, he was, uh, you know, he was, you had me at hello, and now he's, I don't really have time for you today. You know, like that kind of like, they're just supposed to be funny. But the reality is, marriages that are strong, that last a long time, have learned that they can get beyond the pain of hearing the truth. And so people get pretty comfortable with just spit it out. Just say it. I know you love me. That's very clear. We, we, we've, we've established that over a 40-year marriage. Tell me what's going on. And, and they just do. And the other person goes, huh, well, I trust you more than I trust me, so I'm going to say you're probably right, and let's deal with it. That, that ultimately for us can be a pattern of saying, that, you know what, if, if this is true, if fear of helpful confrontation can destroy healthy relationships, guess what embracing help, helpful confrontation does? Embracing helpful confrontation will actually give you healthy relationships. So let's keep reading. Now, a lot of people know this passage, not from the verses I've already read, but a lot of people know this passage from the verses I'm about to read. And there's a little bit of a problem with that, okay? So the verses I'm about to read step into more of a church discipline, like, like when you have to really get, you know, in, in a more direct communal way of saying to somebody, your actions are out of line and your behavior is wrong. Uh, so much so that some people would even describe this whole passage as kind of how to kick somebody out of a church, like how to get rid of a problem. That, that, like, but, but I want to make sure before we go to the next step that you see that Jesus' intention is always to save the relationship. Not saying that the relationship can always be saved. I'm just saying, but his intention from the beginning, Jesus did not start out going, let me tell you how to get rid of problem people. 
He didn't, he didn't at all. That's not his emotional investment in this at all. However, sometimes there are times when you have to really put your foot down in a really big way, and we hope it's very rare. In my ministry of 30 years, I've seen it happen twice, two times, 30 years. It's not something that happens very, very often, okay? Uh, so this is what happens in those rare occasions where a brother sins against another brother or a sister sins against another sister, and there's a good, healthy one-on-one conversation, and it results in not much good. And so there's a witness or two brought in, and that results in not much good. Now we have someone who the witnesses will agree is in sin and making horrible decisions and hurting people with their actions, and now we find out, okay, what do you do then? But to be very clear, the hope is that the then is extremely rare, okay? Extremely rare. Think about it, though. If you're someone who's in sin, you're doing something wrong, okay? Really wrong. So wrong that it hurts your friends so much that they came and talked to you about it. Like, that narrows it down quite a bit as to the kinds of things we're talking about, okay? And then that didn't work, so they went and got two people that you both trust, that you both love, and now the three of them have talked to you, and the three of them have said, yeah, you're in sin, you're wrong, and you're still going, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the intensity level that we're at when we get here. Because keep in mind, 80, 90, 95% of people in the world would have already repented and said, I'm sorry, I don't want, I don't want this kind of conflict. I want, to, I want to be in good shape here with our relationships. So that 5, 10%, maybe less, who get to this point, here's what Jesus says. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And by the way, uh, some would interpret that, tell it to like everybody in the church. Others would typically say, no, that, that, this is talking about the leadership of the church. Like t- tell, it, tell it to those who can represent the church, which I would think is, is more sensible. The text doesn't give us exact details, but that seems more sensible to me. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so there's another step hoping to bring about repentance and unity, right? One more step of really trying to help this brother or sister see the error of their ways and bring them back into a place of of healthy relationship with others in the church. There's still another chance. He says, if that third chance still doesn't work, It says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what he's really saying here is, recognize that he is who he is showing you that he is. Uh, Maya Angelou said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. (laughs) I think that's pretty healthy. You won't hear me quote Maya Angelou very often, but I think that's a pretty great quote. When someone shows you who they are, Believe them, okay? So all he's saying here is, he's not saying, take them out in the street and stone them. No. He's not saying, uh, you know, be mean to them or curse them or anything like that. He's saying, look, this is a person who claims to be a person of faith. They claim to be a person of repentance, a person uh, who lives by faith in Christ, by grace alone. This person claims that, but they've had three different, very real opportunities to exhibit being a person who's repentant and filled with faith in Jesus. And in all three instances, they have shown you that that's not who they are. And so believe them. In that sense, then you begin to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, which is just an example 
of people who are not walking with Christ, okay? People who are not faithful believers. Uh, some of you are probably jumping in your mind. You're thinking, oh, wait, wait, wait. In the Bible, Christians like, like early Jews didn't like tax collectors at all, okay? No. Remember who's writing this. Jesus is talking, but who's the author of the book? Matthew. Matthew is the author of the book. Do you remember what Matthew was before he met Jesus? He's a tax collector, okay? Jesus is, is expressing to us that when someone shows you they're not a Christian, believe them and treat them as you would someone who's not a Christian. Now, we know as people of compassion, acceptance, and truth that, that we want everyone to be a Christian. We want to share the gospel with anyone and everyone who would respond, which means that when someone who we thought was a Christ follower has shown us clearly that they're not a Christ follower, then we're now going to treat them with the same kind of compassion that we would any other person who's not a believer. We're not going to put them on our elder board. We're not going to put them, like they're not going to get the, the, the benefits of being uh, involved in the church formally as a Christ follower. But that doesn't mean we're going to be mean to them or try to get rid of them or try to run them off. It means that we are going to stand in the truth that they have revealed who they are to us. Let's keep going. You see, God's desire is for repentance, reconciliation, and restoration, not running people off. It's not what we're trying to do here. That's not what we're trying to do. God's desire is for repentance. That means that we as Christians would recognize, hey, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I, I messed up. I, I share that openly and honestly. Uh, that helps lead to the next step of forgiveness, which is reconciliation. Okay, wait, we, we've got to rebuild what went wrong. We've got to try and rebuild this relationship that went wrong. And ultimately, by the power of God, we might see restoration. That's when all things are made new. Uh, oftentimes in moments of restoration, people say things like this, I hate that what happened happened, but I wouldn't change the closeness that we have in our relationship that we have now for what we had before. Because in full restoration, God makes all things new. And in many ways, it feels like things are better because of what you went through together. That's what Jesus is building here and developing here and growing here. It's not a recipe for running people off. It's a recipe for trying to find ways to help people see the truth in their lives and to walk with Jesus because of it. This is an important factor. It's important for us to get recognized, believe, and know. Now, now we get to the, what I think is kind of the harder verse to understand fully what he's talking about. He says this. Now, just think with me. He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, let's talk about this. Okay, so some interpretations of that verse would say, some, some would say, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church would say that if the church says you're going to hell, then you're going to hell. If the church says that you are lost, then you are lost. And, and basically, the, the idea there would be that when it comes to heaven and earth, that earth has the remote control and gets to decide what heaven says is true. Okay? And I understand where they come from. Like, it says, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Like it kind of sounds like maybe that's what he's saying. The problem is when you, when you really pay attention to what the rest of Scripture says about the same topic, you'll understand a little better kind of the, the Jewish poetic view here. And that is this. Just like when Jesus says in chapter 8 of Matthew, uh, to he who knocks, the door will be opened. And to he who asks, it will be given to you. Okay? In the context, that, that would be this exact same type verse dealing with an individual versus dealing with a group of people here. The idea is this. When you get clear and you agree with heaven, then the statements you make, the stances you take, are secured by the power of what heaven has already said is true. So we can live in confidence knowing that if the Bible guided by heaven, if the Bible defines what a believer is, then when we as a church stand together that this person is exhibiting lifestyles, choices, behaviors, intentions that are not susceptible of someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit and living in Christ, then what we are doing is together in unity, we are agreeing with what heaven told us in the scriptures, and therefore we can be confident that this is the outcome. We're not controlling God. We are agreeing with God. And in that agreement, we draw great, great confidence in what's happening. This is applicable in lots of ways, lots of ways. When people stand together over something that they know God has promised, then they get to have the confidence of the promises of God. And it, and it should feel bound on earth or loosed on earth, whatever that context allows for. This is us agreeing with God, and this is us making sure that we together listen to him and follow him. And the next verse is this, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Once again, not putting us in the driver's seat like we get to tell God what to do and he's our genie and as long as you rub his bottle the right way, uh, you get what you want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when believers together, acting as believers, defined by what believers are in the scripture, when we believers act out of this, our togetherness, brings about assurance that what God has promised is there for us. It's why it's so important, which is one of the reasons why it's so important that we're a part of a church. Guess what? You can't agree on something if you're by yourself, right? For those of you who, who watch us online every week, I love you. I'm glad you do that. But here's what you're missing out on. You're missing out on the opportunity to be in agreement with a group of people who know you, love you, care about you, and desire the best for you. And when you keep yourself distant from them, when you're worried about the conflict, worried about the being in a crowd, whatever it is, then you miss out on this type of verse that says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree about anything on earth, anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's an important reality. And you need other people. We need other people. I love this word, agree. Um, kind of a fun word study. Uh, it's, it's actually the word uh, symphoneo. Can you imagine what English word we get from that? Anybody want to toss an example? Symphony. That's right. The idea of the symphony. This is, this is where this word uh, kind of leads us. It, it doesn't just mean mathematically we agree that two plus two is four. We all get that. It's logic. It's, it's not just logic, but it's a like-mindedness. It's a togetherness. We are in this 
together and harmony is actually a very good way to describe that because it's not, it's not emotional and theological cloning. I'm not saying all of us are going to be exactly the same about everything all the time, always. We have, a, we have a Bible teachers meeting here after our Bible study. So uh, four of us or five of us who teach Bible classes or preach on stage here are going to be meeting. I guarantee you, if you were to press all five of us on a lot of different important issues, you're going to find areas where we disagree. Some of those disagreements might be fairly significant disagreements. Not significant enough to cause us not to be brothers, not significant enough to cause us to disrespect one another. Not significant enough to say, I don't want to go to church with you. But the goal here is not that we have to agree on everything about everything all the time. No, it's that we agree that we are in this together. We're walking with Christ together. And that relationship becomes big enough and strong enough and tough enough that it can handle the fact that you might have a little different eschatology than I do, or you might have a little different understanding of election than I do, or you might have a little different understanding of, of some other issue than I do, and that's okay. We can, we can live with that. We can trust each other, care about each other, move forward. It's a symphony. The tuba player doesn't sound like the French horn player, and the trumpet player doesn't sound like the cello. But when you hear them all together, it is beautiful. It's symphonic. It's melodic. It's together. That's a view of what togetherness looks like in the church. It's an important factor. Now, at this point, we come to the most, maybe most, I'm going to say one of the most misquoted scriptures in all of the Bible. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's the anthem of church skippers all over the world. It's supposed to be funny. There's four of us in our family, man. I would talk about Jesus over breakfast. We don't need the church. Two or three are gathered, man. Praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> this passage is not the definition of the church. We're not saying that anywhere two or three people get together and say the name Jesus, that means the church has gathered. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that when Jesus says in he or when the scripture says in Hebrews that we should not forsake the gathering, that as long as sometime during the week you got two or three of you together and somebody said Jesus, you're good. It's not what we're saying. This passage is about restoring a broken relationship. This passage <coughs> is about finding connection with other believers. This passage is about handling the imposter who pretends to be a Christian all the while destroying Christian relationships. And where two or three are gathered, there I am among them, is an is a encouragement from the Lord to say, when you embrace conflict, I'll be there. When you embrace truth, I'll be there. When you gather together to try and accomplish something important and valuable, I'm with you. It also, by the way, doesn't mean that if you're by yourself, the God's not there. <laughs> That's not what he's saying either. He's not saying, sorry, you went out on a limb like you're all alone. God's not there. That's not what he's saying either. He's just saying that he is working in this attempt to try and bring grace and mercy to this person who's struggling. He's working in that story. He's with you. And because he's with you, we can be confident as we move forward 
and try to do what's the right, best, good thing for any relationship we have. So let's review and I'm done. If you allow fear to keep you from helpful confrontation, you will allow fear to keep you from healthy relationships. If you allow fear to keep you from going to someone one-on-one when it's really just between the two of you, either because you're afraid of conflict or you're afraid of them saying something back to you or you're afraid that you might be wrong and you're going to be embarrassed if they prove you wrong, something like that, then, then you don't watch out. You'll, you'll miss out on the healthy relationship that's on the other side of that. Now, let me throw out you some things that I think are obvious, but I don't want my sermon to be misunderstood. For lack of a better term, I'm just going to say there are some exceptions to what I just described. If a woman is being battered by her husband, the scripture is not saying she should go to him one-on-one and talk to him about it. Now, maybe the first time something goes over the line, maybe she goes to him one-on-one, but when we see something like that where someone's actually in physical danger, get help. Jump straight to the two or three, and maybe one of them should have a badge. Okay? You want to, am I being clear? If a child is being mistreated by their parents, you're being hurt by them, this passage is not saying you have to talk to daddy by yourself. We're not talking about someone who's in danger, okay? We're also not talking about people in authority over you, okay? If there's a police officer that you believe is being um, over the top in the way that, and and I'm very pro-police, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but if someone who has authority over you is using it to try and dominate you, then you don't pull the police officer in an alley by himself and say, you and I got a problem, You talk to his supervisor. You bring some evidence. You say, hey, I need help here. This is not going well, okay? If I, as your pastor, do something that you think is harmful and bad, if you feel we have the relationship, you can come one-on-one, that's great. But you also have a session of elders that you can sit down with and say, I'm nervous about this. I don't think this is going well, okay? And by the way, I'm not inviting, like, everybody take everything that you don't like about me to the elders. That's not what I'm suggesting, Okay, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am saying that if, if you're under the authority of someone and you feel like they are sinning against you, then you might not be best to go straight to them if you're afraid that that authority that they have over you could, could make it worse. That's why we have accountability structures, so that that doesn't happen, okay? Makes sense? Here's why I think this ultimately matters, and I'm done, and that is this. If we handle interpersonal relationships right, if we handle helpful conflict right, if we will handle what it means to stand together in agreement before God right, there's nothing God can't do with our church. There's nothing God can't do with us. The potential and the joy of what God can do in and through us as a church and in your families and in your marriages and in your friendships and in your neighboring relationships and in your coworker relationships, there's just nothing that God can't do through those relationships if we do our part in this topic the way we should. So I want to encourage you. 
utilize, embrace helpful conflict when necessary so that we might all live in a state of healthy relationships. Would you pray with me? Lord, I trust you. And we as a church, Lord, we trust you. And where we don't trust you, Lord, help us trust you. We're learning to trust you. We, we want and need and must trust you. Lord, we submit to your guidance and your direction. And where you have promised us things, we, we believe you. Where you have stated truth, Lord, we will read it, we will memorize it, and we will live by it as a goal, as a direction, as a directive for our life. Lord, you've told us to be compassionate people so that when we see someone, we don't automatically first notice their frailties and their flaws, but we seek to see the Imago imago Dei, the, the, the image of God in them and value them as created by you and love them the way that you loved so many people who were in difficult places. Lord, give us the, the, the right culture and personality and atmosphere as a church that we might be welcoming and that we might offer acceptance to people. And Lord, build in us healthy, good, strong relationships so that as we go along, we are able to faithfully teach them all that you have commanded. Lord, there's no such thing as repentance if there's not a coming together of sin and truth. That's where repentance happens. So Lord, may may we be attractive to those who are needing repentance in their life and may we be honest and loving with them so that we can speak the truth in love where we will see repentance happen. Jesus, we trust you. We love you. We need you. Take this moment as we worship you. Take this moment as we celebrate you. Take this moment and speak to us deeply so that we might know it is you and nothing else. In your name we pray today, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? If you need prayer in private today, I encourage you to go to the back of the room and pray with one of our prayer counselors. If you need time alone with the Lord, then I encourage you to come and kneel here or you can sit or stand right where you are. Let's respond to the Lord as we sing. Let's celebrate him, but let's let him motivate us to the next steps in our life as we follow him. Let's worship.